Nitrogen, the most abundant element in our atmosphere. All organisms need nitrogen to survive, but how do they acquire it? Microscopic organisms, or microbes, that live in the soil play a huge role in the cycling of nutrients, including nitrogen. Without these microbes making nitrogen accessible, everything from plants to humans wouldn't have access to a basic molecular building block of life. In today's episode, and at work, we're going to the land down under. Our feet. With Dr. John Stark, professor of biogeochemistry at Utah State University. I'm Jeff Lauder. And I'm Kinsey Brock. This is Radio Bio. I am John Stark. I'm a professor at Utah State University in the biology department. I'm an ecologist primarily, uh, but I also work with microbes and the sort of the intersection of microbes and ecology is biogeochemistry in a lot of ways because microbes are responsible for transforming nutrients from organic forms to forms that are available to plants. Mostly centered around carbon and nitrogen cycling, um, but in different contexts. One with invasive species. Mm -hmm. How do invasive species modify nitrogen cycling and carbon cycling? Um, but also in other contexts to look at nitrogen retention. What 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 allows ecosystems to retain nitrogen? Because it's the most limiting nutrient often. And if you lose it, then production goes down. But they seem to have mechanisms for retaining nitrogen. And so we've studied how do they do it? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. what factors influence nitrogen retention? So, you know, topics like that. Okay. And we also usually like to learn a little bit about the person and then get into the science. So did you always know you wanted to be a soil microbiologist? How did you come to study soil microbiology? Okay, that's a good question. I, I always knew that I wanted to be a scientist. Okay. Second grade. Mm -hmm. I remember wanting to be a scientist. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of t my time as a kid hiking around, looking at nature. Mm -hmm. And I'd grown up in rangelands, basically. Yeah. And they were very cool ecosystems. And so I thought, that'd be pretty cool. So I switched my major to range management, which is, again, b basically semi-arid ecology. Then realized soils are really cool. A lot of cool stuff going on there. Okay. But I'd also taken as part of my, so I switched to range management, and then I added a botany degree because I was really more of a heavy scientist than a manager. So what does Dr. Stark research when it comes to soil microbiology and nitrogen cycling? What's so significant about nitrogen and what do we not know? Nitrogen is required for DNA. It's an essential nutrient mm -hmm. and it has to come from somewhere. And there's huge amounts of nitrogen in the world that are in the atmosphere, but they're completely inaccessible because the nitrogen in the air is so stable. Just a quick note on how much nitrogen there actually is in the atmosphere. 
Our air is 78% nitrogen. Most of the air you breathe is nitrogen, but it's not all useful to plants. Totally inert. And that's one reason why it's so limiting, is there's actually, when you look at the fraction that's actually available to plants, it's tiny <laughs> in terms of the total fraction of nitrogen. It like whether they say you know, about the ocean, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. That's kind of the way it is with nitrogen as well. <laughs> I say that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so microbes are responsible for converting that nitrogen in air into plant available forms. They reduce it and nitrogen fixtures, we often talk about legumes mm -hmm. as being important in doing that. And the legumes, the pea plants and alfalfa and things like that, get the credit, but it's actually the microbe who's doing the work. That's the prokaryote. Mm -hmm. No higher plant is capable of fixing that nitrogen, converting that atmospheric nitrogen to plant available. It's the bacteria that carry that out. And so why, why do plants need the nitrogen? So what's so important about plants getting the nitrogen from those microbes? They also, like I was talking about muscles and mm -hmm. enzymes, they have enzymes, they don't have muscles, but obviously, but they have enzymes that are extremely important. One of the big one, Rubisco, is an enzyme that's involved in photosynthesis. A quick tangent into photosynthesis. Dr. Stark mentioned Rubisco being an enzyme that is used in photosynthesis. Plants, as we know, breathe carbon. They take in carbon through little holes on their leaves called stomata. Once CO2 is inside of these holes, it has to be converted into food for the plant. This is where Rubisco comes in. It's an enzyme that breaks down CO2 into carbon chains that can then be rebuilt into sugars and carbohydrates for use by the plant. As Dr. Stark points out, Rubisco contains nitrogen. So no nitrogen, no photosynthesis. Pretty important for sequestering carbon. Mm -hmm. Absolutely essential for the movement of carbon from the atmosphere into living tissues. Mm -hmm. Absolutely essential for that. And it's got a huge amount of nitrogen in mm -hmm. it. So the nitrogen is, is critical for creating those enzymes that are needed for life functions. Every enzyme has nitrogen in it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so plants take up and use nitrogen, then they die. How do microbes and plants then share these nutrients? How does this all work? Plants can't take that up. It's just going to sit there unless the microbes can do something with it. If the microbes then break down the carbon material, but they're not going for the nitrogen, they're going for the carbon usually mm -hmm. because the carbon provides them energy and reducing power. And they often will release that nitrogen just to get to the carbon, but they still have to operate on those organic molecules to release those nutrients, nitrogen and other nutrients, to make them plant available again. So when you say plant available, how does a microbe actually make nutrients like nitrogen available to the plant? Mm -hmm. So is it giving it to the plant? Is it just making it able, the plant's able to take it up with water? How does the plant then get the nutrients? Yeah, mm -hmm. good question. So the plants typically take up nitrogen in two forms, one of two forms, ammonium and nitrate. Mm -hmm. Those dissolve in the soil solution and form ions that float around. Mm -hmm. So plants can transpire water. They take up water and then lose it from the leaves. And in that stream, as they're sucking up water, mm -hmm. those nutrients, those ions, ammonium nitrate, move toward the root. And they can take them up and incorporate them. There's some evidence that certain plants can take up amino acids, very simple nitrogen organic nitrogen compounds, but they don't take up a lot and it's probably very small amounts. 
doesn't really contribute much to the nutrition of most plants. Mm -hmm. So by and large, it's ammonium and nitrate, the inorganic forms of nitrogen that are available to plants. And microbes are the ones that release that organic nitrogen into mineral forms, ammonium and nitrate. Who's controlling who? So we would think plants would be dominant in changing the microenvironment for microbes. But what we're seeing more and more evidence that it's bi-directional. Can you talk about that? Mm -hmm. Okay. okay. The, the majority of the microbial biomass in soils requires carbon as an energy source. So the plant is, uh, is really the, the driving the bus in that case, providing the energy below ground to, to, to feed those organisms. Mm -hmm. Now, in turn, I mean, the plant can get its own carbon. It's not dependent on the microbes to get carbon. Mm -hmm. It gets it from the air and converts it to organic matter through photosynthesis. But what it does need are inorganic nutrients to make plant tissue, it needs nitrogen and phosphorus and sulfur and potassium and iron and magnesium and a whole suite of inorganic elements. Mm -hmm. And some of the ones that are required in the largest amounts are covalently bonded. So they're, they're bonded to organic matter and they're stuck there. Mm -hmm. The plant does that. It binds it to the organic matter when it's creating plant tissue. But when it senesces, when the trees out here drop their leaves, which they're starting to do, it's still locked up in that leaf. And it's the microbes that then release it mm -hmm. into the organic form, inorganic forms that are then plant available. So it's the microbes that are absolutely essential to provide the nutrients that the plant needs. The plant provides the microbes with carbon, the, the microbes provide the plant with nutrients. Another focus of Dr. Stark's research is how invasive species influence soil microbial communities, which in turn directly feed back into vegetative community responses. So we asked, what is an invasive species and how do they affect soil microbial communities? Yeah, invasive species are a huge concern in the United States um, and have been for quite a while. And I mean, we can have invasive animal species, invasive insect and, and plants and microbes even for that matter. Um, so they, they all have their own concerns, pests, uh, crop diseases, and probably the, the big concern with them is that they are an exotic. They're coming in from outside the area. The ecosystems that we have here have never seen them before. Mm -hmm. So some of the pests will come in and, and attack a tree species that we have here that's never seen that pathogen before, and it just can it has no natural protection to mm -hmm. it, and it could just be wiped out. So that, 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 there are lots of in species that come in new. They're novel species, but they're not necessarily invasive. They're exotic species, but not necessarily invasive mm -hmm. in the sense that they're going to wreak havoc mm -hmm. on the system and spread, increase in abundance. And that, those are the ones we worry about. Um, it happened in California a century or more ago the conversion to the annual grassland. I mean, mm -hmm. it was a perennial grassland in huge, you know, throughout California. Now it's almost all annual grasslands. Mm -hmm. California's Central Valley was historically covered in native bunch grasses that formed tussocks. As John Muir said in Mountains of California, at my feet lay the great Central Valley of California, level and flowery like a lake of pure sunshine. But early development of the valley into grazing pastures brought in invasive grasses that took over and converted the valley into what it is today almost entirely non-native grasses. There really wasn't that much large animal grazing 
in the Great Basin and the Intermountain region, west of the Rockies, between the Sierras and the Rockies. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the region I'm talking about. The cattle were an introduced species. Mm-hmm. You could consider the cattle to be the first invasive species. Mm-hmm. So the problem is, in these sagebrush systems, the grazing knocks out the perennial grasses and cheatgrass comes in. Then, cheatgrass on a wet year will produce a lot of very fine foliage. It goes dormant, it dies in about June, and now all of this grass biomass, it makes wonderful fuel for We're fires. We're familiar with that here, yeah. Yes. Big wet year, big it. fire year. Yes. Yeah. So you know all about annual grasses <laughs> and fires, and a simple lightning strike can mm-hmm. set it off. So what does this mean for microbial communities, and how does invasion affect that system? Some people had just gone into uh, cheatgrass sites that had been naturally established and said, yeah, there's more nitrogen here. But you don't know if cheatgrass created that or if cheatgrass invaded a site that has higher nitrogen availability. Mm -hmm. It's a chicken or the egg question. So we went back to some plots that I had set up in 1984 where we established different vegetation types on soil. And we found, in fact, that cheatgrass does increase nitrogen availability below ground and it responds to that nitrogen availability. So how can a grass do such a thing? It, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting question. How, how can it do that? Um, and we, we don't know exactly because again, there's, there's these loops going on and you have to say which came first, the chicken or the egg <laughs> there too. You have the nitrogen in the organic matter, it's released. But where is, is there new nitrogen coming into the system? Because it's not a nitrogen fixer. However, there can be redistribution within the profile. They can take nitrogen up from deeper and, and, and concentrate it in the surface soil. So it's more available there where the cheatgrass is more shallowly rooted. But we, we saw it was distributed even at depth. It had higher ni- nitrogen content even deeper in the soil profile. Um, there's not, there's constantly nitrogen being added to the soil through the atmosphere, nitrogen deposition, especially in polluted areas, but even in pristine areas, you probably get one or two kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year being added through rainfall. Mm -hmm. So over time, you know, that can accumulate if it's sequestered, the plant immediately sucks it up and attaches it to organic matter. It can be put into the soil and, and be stored there. But um, that's probably not enough to explain the differences that Mm -hmm. we saw here. There's too much increase in nitrogen to just explain by a a one or two kilogram addition Mm -hmm. through rainfall. So it may be a combination of that plus a redistribution upward. Um, You don't think the microbial community itself is involved in terms of maybe like Increased almost, almost hitchhiking on the on the cheatgrass or something and coming in or you know that's a good question i we've looked at uh sort of community structure differences bacterial and some fun fungal community structure measurements in this the soils and haven't seen that many difference but those are broad taxonomic groups that we're looking at not specific functional groups mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i have to admit we never did look at rates of nitrogen fixation in these soils. Mm-hmm. I don't know if 
other people have or not. I don't. I'm not aware of anybody who's who's done that. Mm-hmm. So I guess, given what what we so what do we know? Can you sum up for us right here? Like, what do we know, and then what do we what don't we know? What's what's <laughs> next? Like, yeah, with with that system in question. Uh-huh. Okay, so the work that I showed, I think, pretty conclusively shows that when cheatgrass comes in, when cheatgrass invades a site, it increases nitrogen availability. Mm-hmm. Okay. That I think we can now say we know. At least in this region, okay, there's always caveats to this. <laughs> Apparently in southern Utah, Arizona, some places in the Mojave Desert where cheatgrass exists, it's more a, a question of other nutrients. Nitrogen doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to increase as much in those systems as more northern, more mesic systems, Great Basin, uh, Palouse Prairie, so Washington, Idaho, uh, and then the Great Basin area. That seems to be the nitrogen issue there. It may be other plant soil feedbacks that are keeping it going in other locations. Um, what we don't know is what your question was, is there a, an overall increase in nitrogen in the system? And if so, where is it coming from other than atmospheric deposition? Are there nitro, uh, nitrogen-fixing bacteria that are producing more nitrogen there? I think that's a question we haven't really answered. And then, of course, there's the more management-oriented question, what can we do about it? Right. Um, yeah, how do we keep cheatgrass... How do we convert those cheatgrass sites to native vegetation again? Mm-hmm. And that's that's a tougher one. I mean, if you can keep the cheatgrass from coming in, that's the best way. And actually, I was at a ecological society meeting, and a student presented a poster on making beer out of cheatgrass, <laughs> All right. using it yeah, instead of the barley. Drinking the invasives. So there you go. I mean, that, that's adapting. And, uh, wow, what a great idea. Yeah, people are trying to get people to eat Asian carp, too. Mm-hmm. But yeah. We'll mm-hmm. see how that Invasive turns insects, out. all these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Change our recipes to incorporate those, those mm-hmm. invasive species into our diet. Right on. Okay. <laughs> Already running a little low on time, but... Okay. Um, Where do we want to... It's tough because... And it's five o'clock. Do you mind if we ask you a couple more questions? And mm-hmm. okay, because uh, I really wanted to ask you about. Um, you talked about redistribution of nitrogen by cheatgrass, uh, but one of the things you also research is redistribution of water. So if you could really briefly describe hydraulic lift uh, and how okay. that might influence microbial <clears throat> communities, also, um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so so the hydraulic lift is when root systems act as sort of a wicking agent and they'll actually draw moisture from deep in the soil profile you know a meter or more two meters as far as the as deep as the roots go and and sagebrush deep roots go very deep it can act as a little straw or a capillary device that allows that water to move up into drier areas so it's a conduit where water can move from one place where it's abundant to another place where it's not abundant. And often that's lower in the soil profile, it's abundant, and in the surface layers, which are dry, water is not abundant. And so it moves up into that zone through the roots. But it only does it at night 
when the plants are not transpiring. During the day when the plants, the stomates are open and the plants are transpiring, instead of going into the, the soil, it goes out in the atmosphere. So that's the major sink for the water. But as soon as those stomates close, then the gradient is from the lower soil to the upper soil. And the water will actually move up into that upper soil and make it um, wetter, at least right around the roots. It's probably a very localized zone around the roots that's wetting up. And that's why when you actually measure the water content, you don't see a difference because it's so dry and you just can't detect that very tiny increase right around the root. However, that can have a really profound effect because there's huge microbial populations on the root surface and in what's called the rhizosphere, mm -hmm. which is the zone of soil immediately adjacent to the root. Large populations of microbes that are doing important things. So those may, those organisms, those communities may benefit from that very localized increase in moisture, whereas the rest of the soil doesn't really see it. Mm -hmm. But those microbes can do important things like mineralize nutrients from organic matter, releasing the nitrogen from organic compounds, and making it available to the plants. And so in fact we saw that when we stimulated the hydraulic lift, the movement of water from the subsoil to the surface, we also stimulated release of nutrients in that top few centimeters of soil and it made it more available to the plant. Mm -hmm. The plant that was experiencing that took up more nitrogen from that top zone of soil, 10 mm -hmm. centimeters. Even mm -hmm. though we were adding water at 70 centimeters, the top 10 centimeters responded. I think <clears throat> this is... Yeah, I was just gonna say. Okay. Um, well, could you just walk us through how, how do you stimulate? You said stimulate, so mm -hmm. what's yeah. the experiment that mm -hmm. you used to stimulate mm -hmm. um, hydraulic lift? Yeah, so our, our control plants, which were carrying out hydraulic lift too, because it was, for them, it was moisture down at a meter and below than, than in the surface soil. But still, it, it wasn't quite as available. And we um, took a small tube, and every night we would add two and a half liters, basically, of water to that zone down 70 to 100 centimeters. Every night we would do that throughout the entire growing season. So they had a lot more avail water available at depth, so a lot more water could move up through the root system into that dry surface layer. That's how we stimulated it. Both were carrying it out, but the ones we added water to it in, at great depth did it more, transported more water. So could this stimulation and hydraulic lift be used as a tool for agriculture? It could potentially, yeah, very much so. In fact, I was talking to one of the grad students here, who says they're looking at it for tomato plants oh. as a way of allowing the plants to take up nutrients but and giving them water. So they're getting water from depth, but the nutrients are in a drier zone, so the nutrients don't leach out. That's one of the problems in agricultural systems. You're applying the nutrients right. and the water at the same time, and the water leaches the nutrients down to where they're no longer within grasp of the plants. Mm -hmm. right. But if you kept the nutrients in the dry zone and added water someplace else, that water could go into that dry zone, make the nutrients available, and then they could be taken up by mm -hmm. the plants. So yeah. that was a, a new idea um, that I hadn't heard. It was nice coming here and finding out that um, Jing, I can't remember his last name, but is working with tomato plants mm -hmm. on 
and, and talking about using hydraulic lift to Sweet. increase nutrient availability <laughs> without leaching. Cool. So cool, yeah. Uh, imagine there are no limits in terms of funding and resources. What would your dream study be? So for me, it's carbon and nitrogen cycling, use of isotopes for measuring those. And one of the big questions we're asking, asking now is related to carbon sequestration. Mm -hmm. um, how, what are the processes that lead to carbon sequestration in soils? And the, re the, the application of that is to suck the CO2 out of the atmosphere. The CO2 we're producing from fossil fuels, get it out of the atmosphere, put it away someplace, and a substantial amount of it could be sequestered into soils, the top surface layers of soils. Not a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking 10 or 20% of the total. So it's not going to solve the problem, but it could help us out. Mm -hmm. with it's other. a pretty, pretty big pool still. It <laughs> 10 is. 10 to 20%. Yeah, yeah. It is. Um, so I would like to, you know, save the world, but I don't have the <laughs> tools to do that. So you, you got to kind of narrow it down. And for me, it's asking microbial questions in soil. How How is it? What, what decides whether a microbe, for example, is going to respire carbon as CO2, or is it going to incorporate it into biomass? Hmm. That split right there, if it's respiring it as CO2, it's not going to be sequestered. So the first step in carbon entering the soil is at that pinch point right there. What dictates that, and it's called carbon use efficiency, mm -hmm. um, what regulates, and specifically how does soil moisture regulate how much they split, do that split between respiration and biomass production. Um, so I would, I would, I love working in that area. Um, uh -huh. So if you gave me unlimited funds, I would probably still use it for that. The areas <laughs> that I find fascinating. Yeah. Um, that's what we do as scientists, I think, is maybe not what would save the world, but what we find interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what's, what's one thing that you wish all people knew about plants, microbes, and nutrients? One maybe major misconception that you hear a lot. Plants, microbes, and nutrients. <laughs> hmm. Or something like mis a misconception about something that Soil. you study yeah. that you wish people knew about. Besides calling it dirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I would say what we talked about earlier, how, how live it is. It, it's a... I don't want to say it's a living being, but it's it's a living community mm -hmm. that you're stepping on. I don't feel bad for stepping on it. I mean, it's <laughs> not going to hurt them. But it is a living, thriving community. And we depend on it. We interact with it intensely. We've evolved. Like I said, we've evolved with close, much closer than we have now, interactions with the soil. Kids eating it. Mm -hmm. and, and that contributing to the gut biome and contributing to their immune system, the strength of their immune system. We recently had Dr. Embriette Hyde on RadioBio. She's done some work on the oral microbiome and identified microbes associated with increased nitric oxide in the blood, which can increase migraines. These same microbes may be related to the nitrogen-reducing soil microbial communities that Dr. Stark is referring to. And there have been a whole host of studies showing that kids who grow up on dairies or farms are actually have, have a lower incidence of asthma and other autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. We evolved to challenge our immune system mm -hmm. constantly. Mm -hmm. You know, eating dirt. Kids eat dirt. They put <laughs> everything they get in their hands in their mouth. That's yeah. how they sense the world. And 
they are exposed to a huge amount of microbes. The microbial load um, was, we evolved with large microbial load exposure. It's essential to our health. And to imagine a society that doesn't interact closely with the soil, it, it, it's a society that's lost something, that has really become sterile. <laughs> the soil is alive. <laughs> it is very much alive. And, and we don't give it enough credit for that. Yeah, and I think when, you know, most people think about soil, they just think it's dirt, mm -hmm. like that there's nothing happening right. there. But mm -hmm. yeah, okay. There, I mean, there's a huge population in there and that's underestimated too. Um, and most of them we can't grow. That's another thing that people aren't aware of is we, we have auger plates and you, you can take soil and mix it in water and spread it on an auger plate and you'll get things to grow. You'll get lots of things to grow. Mm -hmm. That The ones that will grow on your standard laboratory media represent less than 1% of the population, oh, wow. less than 1% of the community, mm -hmm. the bacterial community that's, that's in that soil. Mm -hmm. DNA uh, work has shown, there was a group in Norway that estimated in a single gram of soil, so you know, like the tip of my little pinky there, there's probably more than 10,000 species of bacteria. Oh, wow. And to put that in perspective, the, the classic manual of bacteriology that lists all known species, the Burgess Manual, only lists about five or 6,000 species worldwide. So in a single gram of soil, there's more bacteria than has ever been identified worldwide. So can they live without each other? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. There are some organisms. Okay, this is cool too. There are, and we don't usually think of these, but they're everywhere. There are bacteria that are capable of growing not on sugars like we do, but growing on inorganic compounds like sulfate. No, or, I'm, I'm sorry, sulfide. Mm-hmm reduced sulfur compounds, reduced nitrogen compounds. So ammonium, I was just talking about that, that's a plant nutrient. There are microbes that can live off that. They get all their energy from oxidizing ammonium. There are organisms that get all their energy by oxidizing hydrogen sulfide. And they don't need the plant because they can fix their own carbon dioxide into organic matter. They can create their own reduced organic compounds from CO2, just like the plant does, mm -hmm. except they use the energy from oxidizing the ammonium. The plant uses light energy to do that, but they use chemical energy to do that. And in fact, they believe that these are the type of organisms that were the origin of life on Earth. Mm -hmm. There's a whole world beneath our feet. You keep playing where you shouldn't be playing. So watch where you're walking. And you keep thinking that you'll never get burned. Ha! I just found me a brand new... This episode of Radio Bio was produced by Jasper Toscani Field and edited by Jeff Lauder. Episode artwork was created by Jackie Shea and Jeff Lauder. Radio Bio is supported by the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group and the Graduate Division at the University of California, Merced. For more information, you can visit our website at radiobio.net or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.